Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. Our reading this morning uh, comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness of heart, they have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to, ever, to, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in the true righteousness and holiness. Amen. God bless the reading of his word. We've been looking at the book of Ephesians uh, and trying to learn what it means uh, to be involved in the church, connected to a body, involved with a group of people. And last week we looked and talked about that the church is full of uh, infants. It's full of spiritual infants, which means when you get involved in a church, it's going to stink. There's a lot of people who need to grow up, and there's a lot of growing, and there's a lot of change that needs to be involved. And what that means and leads us into today is, is that inherently to be involved in a church and be involved in a group of people is to begin to open yourself up to life change. You know, if you go enroll at UCLA or USC uh, for four years, one of the things that will just inherently happen to you is, is that you will change. You will take on values. You will take on new loves. You will take on new creeds. You will take on new fight songs. You will take on new paraphernalia. Because to be involved in something, to be involved in something bigger than yourself will change you. And so to be involved in the church, look, it, it is not to just come and to get a little spiritual inspiration uh, or, or to check a box for a week, it's to come be a part of something that will change you. And so from this text, let's learn three things about being involved and being changed. And that's from this text, the substance of change. And secondly, the dynamics involved with that change. But that thirdly, understand the power for that change. First, the substance of the change. Look, when Paul says, put off the old self in verse 22 and put on the new self, this is an unprecedented idea. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, uh, former professor, New Testament professor at uh, University of Manchester, uh, says in his commentary that there is a ton, actually, of antiquity work on people using this language of put off and put on. It was very common uh, instructional ethical language, but almost every single time, it was used in uh, the ancient Near East to talk in this language. It would be in the context of virtue, that uh, they would say, put off hate, uh, put on love, uh, put off lust, put on fidelity. But nobody, nobody had ever used this language of put off and put on with the idea of a new self. 
That is what Paul is talking about. He's not saying change happens by just taking on virtues and taking on new behaviors, but change begins internally and moves externally. Now, the next section we're going to look at uh, is all a sort of external Christian virtue. But you can't get there until you deal with what Paul says here about putting off and putting on a new self. That is the substance of Christian change is that it begins to change inherently the internal nature of your whole life on the outlook of everything. And, and there's, there's three examples here that are worth highlighting that sort of draw out this substance of change. That when you become a Christian, the new self, it, it gives you a new purpose, it gives you a new identity, and it gives you a new motivation in life. Let me show you what I mean. It, the new self gives you a whole new purpose. In verse 17, Paul says this, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, this word futility is the Greek word uh, mariotei. It can also be translated purposelessness, or emptiness. And what Paul is saying is that outside the life of God, life is purposeless. It's utterly meaningless. Now, some of you say, like, what? That's, that's a little extreme. Well, no, everybody thinks this. Uh, Steven Pinker, uh, professor at Harvard University, he says, life as a whole has no meaning. Life began as the best available theories tell us as a chance combination molecules that just evolved through random mutations and random selection. All of this just happened. It did not happen for any purpose. Uh, Alex Rosenberg, author of Atheist Guide to Reality, he says this, what is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? Ditto. That they're all saying, look, look, if there is no God, Despite our deepest desires and longest wishes to make meaning in life and have a purpose in life, there is none. And as much as we want there to be purpose, if there is no God, you really can maybe create something little, but it will have no inherent discovered meaning in the world whatsoever. And some people are like, well, what's wrong with that? Because that's just kind of life. You just do it. There's no inherent meaning. You just kind of get up and go through it. The problem is, if you have no purpose your life will be an inherent contradiction. That is, at one moment, you will care deeply about something. You will care so much about people getting on board with it, but then this next moment, you'll tell everybody to just think for themselves and be true to themselves and love what you want. Nobody put it better than G.K. Chesterton. And this, listen to what he says about this. He says, if you have no purpose, then you can never really be a revolutionist. Fact that the fact that the, the person who has no purpose doubts everything really always gets in his way when he wants to denounce anything. For all denunciation implies a moral doctrine of some kind, and the modern revolutionist doubts not only the institution he denounces, but the doctrine by which he denounces it. As a politician, he will cry out that, that war is a waste of life, then as a philosopher, that all of life is a waste of time. A Russian pessimist will denounce a policeman for killing a peasant and then prove by the highest philosophical principles that the peasant ought to have killed himself. But with the new self, what Paul says is you are freed from the futility of that and given a whole new purpose. The Westminster Confession of Faith 
which is a famous doc, uh, document just written in the 17th century out of the Church of England. Its first catechism question is this, what is the chief end of man? As in, what is your purpose? It says to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That when you get a new self, you get a whole new outlook on all, everything. It's that the purpose of, of giving up every day, the purpose of going to your job, whether how mundane you may feel it is, or significant you feel like you're having an impact on the culture, the purpose of it all is to enjoy God and to glorify Him in every single thing. Do you know how much meaning that gives you to the smallest parts of your life? You know how, how that draws you in to the work of the church? Like, why should you give up free time to get involved in the church and to take on new ministries and, and to give up spare time? It's because you have a whole new outlook. You have a whole new purpose that everything that we're doing is to glorify God and to make Him known and begin to enjoy Him forever. The new self, it gives you the new purpose, but it also gives you a new identity. Look in verse 19, Paul says this, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, to greedy practice of every kind of impurity. Now, what is this? What does it mean to give yourself over to something? See, whatever you love most in the world, you will inherently give yourself to it. And when you give yourself to it, the thing that you most love now has control over your life. But you willingly do this because the things that we give ourselves over to are out of the belief that if I give myself over to this thing, it will love me, it will tell me who I am in this world, and it will affirm me. See, why, why do you give yourself to a relationship romantically? Inherently, we do this because we're empty and we want to be loved and we want to be affirmed and we're sure that this relationship will finally do this for me. It will tell me that I'm a loved person. Why do we give ourselves uh, over to jobs at unhealthy rates? Why do we have the most unhealthy work ethic in the, in the, in the world? It, it, it's, it's because we truly believe that if I accomplish this, if I do this with my job, then I'll be somebody, then I'll be significant. Erin uh, um, Griffith, uh, this girl wrote an article in The Atlantic on the toxic life of her peers. She's working in San Francisco and she said this, I've noticed that the concept of productivity has taken an almost spiritual dimension. Techies here have internalized the idea that work is not something you do to get what you want. The work itself is all. Therefore, any life hack or company perk that optimizes their day, allowing them to fit in even more work, is not just desirable, but inherently good. It's creating the idea that Elon Musk is your high priest. You're going to church every day and worshiping at the altar of work. It creates the assumption that the only value we have as human beings is our productivity capability, our ability to work rather than our humanity. Look, when you go out of the world and you look for identity, what she's saying and what Paul is saying is that life outside of God will inherently create this almost drug addiction-like relationship to your search for an identity. Look, when he says they have become calloused to it, the language there is like it ceases to feel the effects of something. It's like you go after your identity 
and work, it gives you a hit. It makes you feel like you're actually somebody. But the problem is it doesn't last long and you come down from it. And so what happens is the next time you go into work, the next accomplishment, the next project has got to be more significant, has got to be more impressive, and you have to keep going harder and harder every single time to find out who you are and to get what you want. And that never makes you free. It makes you a slave. Now, some of you are are saying, like, I don't give myself to anything. I'm totally free. I just look at myself. I look at at my deepest desires. I I look at who my internal self is telling me to be, and I've grabbed a hold of that, and that tells me who I am. But that, friends, is an illusion. Look, trying to figure out who you are in this world by looking deep within is never how you find yourself to be. I'll, I'll, I'll explain it this way. 1,200 years ago, or 1,500 years ago, go back to, uh, to Europe. A man walking down the street, let's say he has two conflicted desires internally. One is to smash people and beat their brains in. The other is he's got a, uh, a sexual desire that is not exactly socially appropriate. What's this man gonna do? He's gonna suppress the sexual desire, the sexual impulse, and he's going to embrace the desire to smash people's heads. And he's going to be affirmed as a knight, as a warrior, as somebody who is a hero in the culture. Now fast forward to today, that same exact man walking down the street He's got two desires, one to smash people's heads in and the other a sexual desire outside of the normal biblical ethic of marriage. What's he going to do? He's going to suppress the desire to smash people's heads in and he's going to embrace the sexual desire for somebody else. That's not looking within. The reason why you would pick one at one time and one at the other time is not because you're getting in touch with your desires. It's because you're getting in touch with what the culture says is appropriate. You're embracing what the culture has said. If you do this, you will be affirmed. You will be loved. You will be liked. And that, friends, makes you no more free today than somebody who was 1,200 years ago. It's the same thing. But when you get a new self... The way you understand who you are in this world is not by looking within, it's not by trying to find something out there in the world, it's by looking to who Jesus has said you are, which is that you are purchased, you are loved, you are adopted, you are called by God to be a new person, to be reflecting his image. It says, in righteousness and holiness. That is, you are somebody who begins to live life like God, implementing life like God. And that's not culturally conditioned. It's circumstantially immune. It's unconditionally love and completely free. And God gives it to you, and then you live in light of it. But also the new self, it gives you a new motivation. Now, what do I mean by this? Look, these virtues that that he's going to eventually talk about, how do we typically teach these things? Like like anger, for example. How do we usually teach how to handle anger in our culture? It's usually through fear and pride. 
looks like this. Don't be angry. Why? Well, because you'll get in trouble as a kid. And it will be very consequential every time you have an outburst of anger. And the older you get, the more you realize, if, if, I, if I don't have outbursts of anger, it's probably going to be socially advantageous to me, actually will help me move up better in the work ladder. And so the fear of what you'll lose if you have an outburst of anger is so much how it controls your anger. Or we do pride, which is don't be like those people who are so angry and annoying and difficult to get along with. But the problem is, inherently, at one point in life, you will get to a place where being angry is no longer a consequence, but actually advantageous to you to be able to do what you want, especially if you get into a position of power in an organization. Because usually outbursts of anger are not ways that you lose your job, but actually the way you can control people underneath you in your job. But when you get a new self, here's what Paul says in verse 20. He says, that's not how you learned Christ. Okay, class, how do you learn Christ? Because this is how the gospel works. When you become a Christian, look, religion says you go to God and you give him a good record. You go live a virtuous life, you go live this admirable life, and then he accepts you. And what that means is all of your virtue will always be done out of fear. It'll always be done out of slavery. It'll always be done out of burden. You will do anything that looks Christian because you'll be afraid if you don't do this, God will reject you. Or you can go into virtue in this way that just is out of pride. I'm one of these people who goes to church. I'm one of these people who reads my Bible. I'm one of these people who gets it. But all of the virtue that you take on, it will always be cold, it will never grow, it will always be mechanical, and it will be used socially to stand on a ladder over other people. But how did you learn Christ? The way the gospel works is God came to you, not because you were showing any inclination whatsoever, but he came sheerly out of his grace. When we wanted nothing to do with him, we were looking for everything but him, he came down and gave himself for you, surely out of his grace. And what that means is that God comes and purchases you and makes you his child, gives you this new identity, and then you go live for him. And so the motivation to live in light of the new self is all out of gratitude. It's all out of this new life that God has given for me. What that does is it, is it changes all of the way that you live your new life from slavery to a child, from duty into choice. Because you have this new identity who has been completely purchased, utterly safe in the arms of God. And Paul says, like, when you become a Christian and you get involved in a community of people, that substance ought to begin to mark change in your life. That's the first point. Secondly, and much shorter, there are dynamics that are involved with that change. Look, when you begin to move into a new motivation, a new purpose, and a new identity, look, there is going to actually be an intentional struggle that you're going to find with this. 
Let me show you what I mean. Look, five times in this text, Paul talks about change. He says, you're no longer walk like those people. Put off this. Be renewed. Put on this. And be created like this. He's talking about change. Probably the most helpful way he talks about it in this text, though, is when he says, put off and put on. In verse 22, he says, put off the old self, put on the new self. Now, those verbs, put on and put off, are what are called in the Greek the aorist tense. We don't have a tense like this in the English language and actually probably not in any other language. But what the aorist tense says is it is a simple past finished one-time action. And what Paul is doing is he is reminding the Ephesians There was a moment that you said no to your old way of life, that you put that off, and that you put on the new self that God gives you in Christ. And what he's saying is there was an intentional moment in your life where you began to see your old life the way that you did motivation in this life you began to look at your purpose in this world and rethink it. You began to see how you were uh, pursuing identity and said no. Um, a couple years ago, I had a friend who lives in uh, El Segundo, and we were uh, sitting on his back porch, uh, hanging out one afternoon, and um, airplane, you know, just flew right over and it felt like it was 10 yards above it. Just, just I mean, it, was, it, it blew me away. And I went, whoa, what was that? And the guy goes, what was what? <laughs> the 747 that I thought was going to crash into your apartment. And what I realized is that he had lived there for so long and he had experienced that so much that a, a plane flying over his apartment just felt like nothing to him. Look, so many people are living life for something, telling themselves this is who they are in this world, are motivated in a slave-like way by fear and pride. But it's like a plane flying over your life. You, like you don't even know it, and you're not even in touch with it. But become a Christian. And to get in touch with the new self, what it means is to become aware of those things and to finally say, no, I, I've had enough of that. I, I've had enough of the exhaustion of that. I've had enough of the directionlessness. I've had enough of the empty pursuit of identity. I've had enough of this slave-like experience. And I want something else. Look, in the, the dynamic of if you want to change is that you've got to pursue it. Now, a lot of people will begin to look at something about themselves and lament. I hate this about myself or I'm so tired of struggling with blank, or I'm tired of feeling like this. And lament can be an inclination of a step of change, but it's not the transition of putting off and putting on. Have you done that? 
Have you had a moment where you put off and you put on? Because change around here will inevitably draw you to a moment where you must finally look at your old way of life and say, I'm tired of it. I want to put it off. I want to put it on. But when you put, put it off and put it on, you have to understand that there's going to be a struggle with this. Because Paul says, put off the old self and put on the new self. Now, he says, put off the old self, put on the new self. That is the same person. So what this will look like for you personally is that Paul is talking about two sides, two experiences of the same person. These are people who were old but are no longer old, yet are living like they are old. Look, when he says this, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in verse 17. You know what's fascinating about that is these are Gentiles. And he says, look, you're no longer a Gentile, even though you are. So stop living like you used to be. And you're going to have to understand when you begin to put off the old self and put on the new self, this is like going two steps forward and one step back all the time. That people around here have constantly, even though declared to put off the old self, lived like they're living like they're still in the old self. And what the Christian life is, is a struggle to constantly live in light of the new self because you are the new self, but you're struggling to go back and forth to the old self and going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Robert Louis Stevenson's um, famous book, uh, The Curious Tale of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, has an amazing section where he's having this internal monologue. If you don't know the story, it's about a man who does a scientific experiment and has these two personalities that he goes back and forth between. And here's what he says. He says, after all, I reflected, I was like my neighbors. And then I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. And at the very moment of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea and the most deadly shuddering. These passed away and left me faint. And then as it in the turn of the faintness, I subsided, and I began to be aware of a change in the temper of my thoughts, a greater boldness, a contempt of danger, a solution of the bonds of obligation. I looked down. My clothes hung formlessly on my shrunken limbs. The hand that lay on my knee was corded and hairy. I was once more Edward Hyde. That is the experience of putting off the old and putting on the new. And it's not shameful to have that experience because it is the experience. And that means you're going to constantly have to be shedding an identity that is no longer yours and pushing into something that is yours that you struggle to embrace and believe in. And everyone around you is struggling to do the same thing to live in light of who God has said you are now living. And that's the dynamic of the change. 
that it is an intentional thing that you must move towards, but you're going to struggle once you even intentionally move towards it. So Paul gives us the substance of the change. He gives us that dynamic. But thirdly, how do you do that? Look, how do you, how do you take on a new purpose? How do you take on a new identity? How do you take on the new motivation? How do you begin to do this when you're going back and forth and back and forth? Because what it will look like is that one day, I mean, you, you will say, you know what? Money is not that important. And what is important is living for the purposes of God's kingdom and living for his kingdom and, and giving things away and making sure more people know him. And it's like later that day, all you can say is we got to have more money. Or you know what it's like? It's like saying, you know what is most important is who God has told me. And I'm going to be present and live here and content and be with my family. But then later that day, thinking, leave me alone, I've got to do more work. How do you push through? How do you push through the struggle and embrace the new self? Look, you, you have got to see what Paul says here. He says in verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and true holiness. Look, this word here for be renewed is a word that's only used here in the entire New Testament. It's not used anywhere else. And notice Paul does not say, make sure you are renewed or pursue renewal. He says, be renewed. And what the word suggests and what it means is that something must happen to you. The word, it, what it almost really means is you must be captured. It, it, it means to have your imagination captured. And what must capture your imagination? It, it's, look, it's not an idea. It's not even a picture of yourself. Which, what must capture you is Jesus. If, if you begin to see who Jesus is to you, who Jesus is to you in the, while you're still struggling in your old self, who Jesus is to you while you wanted nothing to do with him, and what he, the lengths to which he went to go through to make you have your new self. The more you begin to see that, the more that you tap into that and have your imagination captured by that. Look, in those moments of apathy, when you're struggling to put off the old self, look, you've got to tap in and to worship and to see and have your heart drawn up into who Jesus is for you so that you can begin to embrace the new self, so that you're constantly having the spirit of your mind renewed and captured by the goodness of the gospel. And, and what is that? Look, look, when he says, created after the likeness of, of, true, of God and true righteousness and holiness, look, do you know how that happened to you? Look, Jesus, he was equal with God, but he did not consider equality with God something to hold over us. He let go of that and came down and condescended and made, he made himself nothing. He became uncreated so that you and I could be recreated. He became undone so that you and I could become whole. He undid himself 
and took on the old self of all of us so that you and I could be new. He did that not just out there, for you. He did this for you. He underwent the curse, the thing that is most unlike God, the thing that God has nothing to do with because of his holy, perfect name. He became a curse so that you and I could taste the blessing of new life. Do you know that? Do you know that in a deep, powerful way where it can capture your imagination, where you're struggling to live in the new identity, where you're struggling in the purposeless of nice, a purposelessness of life. Do you know that in those moments? Look, has that captured you? Because the beautiful part of this is that the power for this is not that you pursue it, but that it comes and pursues you. There was a great children's story that I loved called The Pirate Who, who Tried to Capture the Moon. And, and what the story says is that there was this ambitious pirate who he loved nothing. Uh, and so what he did is, is he sat on an island and every ship that came by, he captured it, took all of their stuff and tied it up to his island so that he had and captured everything that he could. And once he'd captured everything on the sea, he got even more ambitious because he was an ambitious pirate. And he decided he wanted to capture the moon so he tied himself to ravens and tried to fly up to the moon and, and could not capture them. He shot cannons at the moon, trying to capture the moon. None of it worked. So he thought, I know what I'll do. I'll capture everything that the moon loves and draw the moon down here and capture it. So he says the moon loves to peek through curtains. So he captured all of the curtains in the world and took them and be with him. That didn't work, so he, ca he, ca he said, well, the moon loves to reflect in frog ponds, so he captured all of the frog ponds and pulled them up. Still, the moon did not draw close. He captured all the poets, because people love to write poems about the moon. Had all the poets there, and still the moon did not come. But as he did this, the moon began to draw close and close and closer. And as the moon began to be closer to the pirate, he did not become ambitious, he began to be afraid. And feared that the moon that he was after was not something that he could control, but it was going to control and capture him. So he gave it back, he gave back all of the curtains, he gave back all of the frog ponds, he released all the poets in hopes that the moon would go away. But still the moon moved down closer to him. And here's how the story ends. Moonlight spread over the, over the waves. It covered his empty island. The pirate lifted his trembling sword as the whole sky became the moon. And the moon stopped and it waited. The pirate stared into its light and a wild shiver ran through him like a wave. He forgot about being afraid. He forgot about being fierce. He lowered his sword. He dropped his armor and he whispered, Moon, a wonderful moon, it is you who have captured me. For on that island now, there was someone new the moon loved and who loved the moon. Look, here's how you embrace the new self. Christianity is the one thing that you do not capture and you do not grasp but it is a God who has come down here to capture you. 
has that captured your imagination, drawn you up, and freed you to become who God has declared you to be already in Christ? When you get around this community, that's what should start happening to you. Let's pray. Our Father, this new self that is so hard to embrace. Lord, one moment I want it, and the next moment I want nothing to do with it. One moment I think I've got it, and the next moment it's out of my slippery hands. One moment I'm proud that I have it, and I judge the person next to me for not having it. Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to be a collective people, Lord, who are together putting off the old and putting on the new. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.